Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a vision for a beloved community, a global family marked by equality, justice, and brotherly fellowship. This is a much more demanding vision than mere coexistence or even what we sometimes call reconciliation in the church. The beloved community demands sacrifice and dismantling inequitable systems and giving voice to the marginalized. In this series, From Redeemer City to City, we're talking with pastors and Christian leaders who have experienced building beloved community in and through the local church. We hope these conversations expand your imagination for what holistic ministry can look like in your city. And if you like what you hear, you can find more from these contributors and many others at RedeemerCityToCity.com slash resources. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I'm talking with Daniel Hill, who is founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church in Chicago. He's also the author of a couple of books, White Awake, An Honest Look at What It Means to be White, and White Lies, which comes out in September, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Daniel and I have a great conversation here about his journey from being on staff at a white megachurch uh, ministry to becoming a church planter of a multi-ethnic church in a diverse neighborhood in the city. We also talk about why it's so hard for white evangelical pastors and their congregations to talk about race and the consequences of that failure, that difficulty for discipleship. As is usually the case with us here, we cover a lot of ground, but I think this will be really helpful for anyone out there who feels convicted and compelled to take the next step of advocacy for racial justice in your church. This can help you anticipate the obstacles that you are likely to encounter and give a helpful frame of reference for how to lead and and what to do next. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for being with us on the podcast. Thanks, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I'm uh, especially excited about this conversation because we we connected a long time ago. I was trying Mm -hmm. to remember, I think that I mentioned your ministry at Willow Creek, Access, way Mm -hmm. back uh, in my first book, which was 2010. Right. So we met before that, uh, yeah. and I became familiar with your story before that. So that's we're going on a decade, and uh, you were already in ministry at that point uh, at River City Community Church, which is mm-hmm. kind of where we yeah. want us to start with level setting. Um, but you had uh, you had kind of come up through um, ministry experience at Willow Creek, and then mm-hmm. uh, left Willow Creek to plant a church in the city that was intentionally multi-ethnic. Yeah. Is that the basic shape of it? Yeah. Um, great. And so can you just tell me a little about not specifically the motivation or interest in that move, but I'm, I'm thinking kind of the experience, early experience of that transition from sort of majority culture ministry to a, an intentional multi-ethnic ministry? Yeah. So I spent my 20s at Willow Creek back when Willow Creek was, you know, in that small group of like cutting edge evangelical churches that were having a lot of influence over, you know, white Christianity and North America in general. Um, you know, I won't get into the whole story, but I, I had a bit of a faith crisis while working there that was directly tied to my racial awakening. You know, as I started to see how deep race goes and how deep the, I know it's a big term, we can get into it later, but how big the ideology of white supremacy is, 
um, I was really quickly discovering that it just wasn't talked about in any of the white circles I was in. And that worse, you know, I had my four or five favorite preachers, you know, that I would listen to a lot. And as I went through catalogs trying to understand race and white supremacy, I just realized it was something like the people in my world never talked about, never preached on other than a passing comment, like we shouldn't discriminate against people, you know, or racism is bad. Obviously that was agreed on, but outside of that, it wasn't um, being addressed. And so I really did. I, I, I start, you know how when you're talking evangelists to people and they'll say, well, you're just a Christian because you grew up in a Christian environment or you accept the Christianity because you're in a Christian nation, you know, I actually started as, for the first time have those doubts. Like, am I just a byproduct of white Christianity? Like, could my faith hold up anywhere outside of a educated middle-class white environment? And so the church plant was never, I mean, I know there's all these missional reasons we should plant churches, but it was honestly a bit selfish in the sense that I was having a theological crisis and I felt like I needed the freedom to kind of learn from and then preach my way into a deeper understanding of the gospel. So that was a big part of the story of knowing that like everything moved so fast and grew so fast at Willow, I was not going to be able to lead ministries and ask questions I needed to ask, you know, at the rate at which I needed to accomplish what I had historically been able to do. Okay. But it was very much driven by a theological desperation really. Well, and I have to think that that particular issue fast growing, successful in, you know, kind of in the, uh, an exemplar ministry, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and not creating space to wrestle with the kinds of questions you're talking about. Yeah. I think that that's like, that's not limited to a Willow Creek. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I would think that, that right. that's a problem. There's probably a very similar story for a lot of people to tell at a lot yeah. of ministries that are fast growing and something like discussions about race, justice, what that means for ministry, et cetera, are, really disruptive questions. Yeah. And if you're on a trajectory of growth and other things, it does, I can imagine it doesn't feel like it, if it's on any, someone's radar at all, it yeah. doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you stop and dig into while other things are going on. Yeah. And then very likely it's not on a lot of people's radar at all. Yeah. Um, well, we're in a moment now where a lot of people are having this conversation, you've been yeah. in the, the work of multi-ethnic ministry and trying to understand your um, kind of inherited um, racialization, I guess, maybe, and mm-hmm. other things for a decade, 15 years or more. Um, and we're kind of, people are listening in a different kind of way now, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious if you could tell me a little more about the racial awakening, use that term, and I, I think is really helpful kind of how that came about prior to and accelerated maybe in the process of church planting? Yeah, well, at the risk of being a little bit oversimplified, but for time's sake, I'll say for the white journey, um, and then let we're, we're talking Christian here, right? So that we can be clear cut on that, right? Um, I think there is an awakening that has to happen at an external level and at an internal level. Um, and they're both critical, but they play out in a different way. I actually think in a lot of ways, the more important one is the external one, um, which to just say it plainly, um, Right, the, the ideology and system of white supremacy has been uh, not only a social ill, which it is, but I, you know, I think I don't know how we can theologically call it anything other than a stronghold. Right, it's it's an Ephesians six principality power. Um, it's a stronghold that we've been up against since the very foundation of this country. Right, and so I don't know how really anymore we can. That's a big part of my discovery. Is like, how do we even talk about Jesus and His kingdom without talking about the profound stronghold that is white supremacy? And you know, later if you want to kind of define these terms more, we can. But just to kind of paint the bigger picture, so at the external reality, it's how to have a biblically informed, theologically based approach to understanding the system, structure, ideology, stronghold, principality of white supremacy. 
um, in the world. And like, what does it mean to be on mission sent by Jesus Christ to proclaim through word and deed his gospel and his kingdom in the face of such a profoundly powerful system as white supremacy? I think that's the external part. That's actually in a lot of ways the more important part. Mm. Um, the racial awakening, I think, has to do with to be white in America, I, mean, I, I don't. I don't even need to talk about privilege at this point. I think just to simply be white in America is to be conditioned to not think about white supremacy. Um, it's 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 more than just we're not aware of it. I actually think it's part of the inherent design of white supremacy is to condition us to not think about it. So when we actually do begin to think about it, we actually have even though the external engagement is what we need to do, we get almost immediately paralyzed because internally we, we start to collapse mm -hmm. for different reasons. Um, some of it is because it's scary. Some of it's because it's disorienting. Some of it is because it questions and challenges some of my deepest held beliefs. Some of it is because yeah, I've got a insecurity that my faith won't hold up in the middle of it. Um, some of it is really just want to protect power and privilege. Some of it is we go to this deep shame place right away. Like there's, there's a variety of reasons, but honestly, most of the racial awakening, just has to do with the fact of what do we have to do to keep moving forward? Because there's a dozen things or more that are calling us to kind of step away from the conversation. And so that's where I see the kind of intersection between the external and the internal component of this. What we need to be doing is seeing how the world works and how we've been shaped by how the world works. But it actually requires quite a bit of internal transformation just to stay in the conversation, which is a little bit lamentable, but it's often, it is actually the reality for almost all of us. Yeah. Well, wow, that's really helpful. And a couple of things that I that jump there is I I think and you know as I'm watching social media and hearing conversations with pastors and other things around the uh, you know around the country, there does seem to be a pretty quick jump to the internal aspect of these things, um, and maybe without acknowledging even that there is an external right, but that that the main problem is that we have an internal sin problem in our hearts. That's where racism lives. And yeah. um, that if we would just address it there, then the other things would sort of work itself out. And so I think it's very helpful, interesting to hear you describe, um, you know, the, the external reality is, is, the, uh, is essential for defining the mission of the church in light of this reality, yeah. right? Um, and so the internal has to happen. There has to be sort of an internal excavation, internal move. Right, right. Um, but yeah, when we start talking about what does this mean for ministry? What does this mean for a local right. church? Uh, it's impossible to talk about that without recognizing the sort of external right. realities right. that you're describing. So maybe before we go too far, um, can can you give us your working definition of white supremacy? Because that's one of those terms that has connotations and and, and, and people have a hard time sometimes getting past that connotation. I'm curious if you can kind yeah. of help us level set for that. Yeah, it's a term I, I, I know that when I'm in a white setting, it's going to feel automatically be provocative, even risk alienation. But let, let me even just start. I will define it. But even at a theological level, it's so interesting to me that we struggle with that term mm -hmm. because, you know, I think in Colossians 1, for instance, right, where the Apostle Paul is worshiping Jesus who's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, right, um, kind of paying homage to all the things that Jesus is. And he says, so that in all things, Christ may, may be supreme. Right, that Christ might be supreme in all things. That's a cornerstone of Christian theology, right? Is that Christ should be supreme over all things. Mm -hmm. So when something actually literally names itself in opposition to Jesus, which is what <laughs> white supremacy is, like it's literally naming itself as a competitor to Jesus to be supreme over all things. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do we how do we not have a faster move to say whatever it is, even if I don't understand it exactly, whatever it is, it's by its own definition 
vying with Jesus Christ for supremacy of all things, right? Mm. It's a Colossians one war, you know? Um, and so it's, it's just, it's, I know some of the reasons why, but it continues to perplex me mm. that we find ways to distance ourselves rather than saying, well, dang, if there's something that for 250 years now has been battling Jesus Christ for supremacy of all things, standing <laughs> in the way of his coming kingdom, is there anything more important for a Christian, for a pro-life person, whatever, how are you thinking of yourself? Is there anything more important? Okay, that's the theology. At a practical level, the other reason I think the term is great, even though it's not great, but important, even though it's a charged term, is it points to what it's saying, which is at its most basic level, it's not the most extreme violence that is associated. Like oftentimes people think of KKK or marches with tiki torches, right? That's the most violent expression of it, but it's literally an ideology. Mm -hmm. It is a way of viewing the world that attaches supremacy or superiority to whiteness. Mm -hmm. Right. So it says at a human level, whiteness is most valuable, superior, supreme, supreme, white culture is most superior, most supreme. It's an I and then it's and what we're seeing in America right now that has to be named just as equally is that white supremacy is built on anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. Right. Part of the system of assigning superiority to whiteness is also assigning inferiority to blackness. Yeah, so at its basic level, I see white supremacy first as an ideology that, that assigns superior traits to white people, white culture, inferior traits to black people, black culture. Um, and, and that's where it becomes, again, a really a theological problem. Because right, our, our theological starting point is always the Imago Dei, right? That the value of a human being comes from the image and likeness of God, not from any human indicator. We all can comfortably say that when it's not a race conversation. For some reason, it gets harder for a lot of us to talk about white supremacy and apply that same thing. But that's, that's the ideology of white supremacy. It says, whiteness is five-fifths human to use kind of the old constitution language right when it was being battled over how black people be represented in law um you know black people were called three-fifths human and that really gets to the nature of how white supremacy works it says white people are five-fifths human that black people are three-fifths human that all other human beings value is measured based on this kind of racial hierarchy that has white at the top black at the bottom and so human value is assigned really in a in a way that's totally opposed to the nature of God, but according to the ideology of white supremacy, um, human value is assigned based on this hierarchy with white at the top, black at the bottom. And so it's a profoundly sinful thing that we just have to constantly contend with and wrestle with. So that'd be my fast definition of it. That's really helpful. And I, I think maybe if we can uh, even sort of take that to ministry as an illustration, I think it's, yeah. it's interesting to think about the uh, ministry literature that, um, I would say predominated until just the last couple of years. If uh, you know, and and m maybe there have been outliers here and there, but at the very least, you, you and I met when I was at Leadership Journal back in the day, mm -hmm. and so we were kind of very much in the um, Christian leadership um, literature, yeah, you know, right. world. And at that time, the sort of ministry models that are held up are almost exclusively um, white pastors leading predominantly white churches. I don't remember any of us talking about celebrating the achievements of the white church or celebrating uh, innovations in the white church. We just talked about it as church. Right. And so I think when, when I hear you describing, um, you know, the sort of the ideology that whiteness is superior, sometimes that manifests, I feel like, in the ex not in the explicit claim that whiteness is superior, but that whiteness is normal right. and that whiteness is right. standard and that right. everything else is a sort of degree of deviation from that standard right. or norm. I'm wondering how that, yeah, how you see that play out in ministry or maybe even in your own journey of kind of 
unlearning that approach yeah. to ministry and kind of picking yeah, up. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate. I think that's. I think that's a good example. Um, yeah, right. So most of us can quickly um, d- call the extreme forms of white supremacy dangerous and evil and heretical and all that. But yeah, it's those everyday forms, right, that we're not even aware of. So, yeah, I think an analogous example of what you're saying. I remember I had a professor in seminary who was very racially conscious and I was still early on in my journey so I was actually borderline offended by this but looking back I realized how brilliant it was he said you know he was actually talking about white supremacy and everybody was arguing against it almost predictably and he said let me just show you an everyday form of this and he he pulled out the catalog for the very seminary we were at and he said you know this this seminary prides itself on exposing you so you can actually take african-american study african-american theology studies you can take latin american theology studies you can take asian american theology studies he said, I actually think that's good. I'm not demeaning that at all. He said, but now go try to find where you, where you take white theology studies. Where's the white theology section? He said, we don't have, white theology is the norm, right? When we talk of Luther or Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or whoever the ones are that many in these circles, you know, and it's not to demean um, what they say as much as it's to say, that's just assumed to be the cultural baseline, the theological baseline, right? And then to your very point, right? It's like, we don't think of the other theologians as being the baseline. We think of them as accentuating or coloring or adding to the starting point. And I would say that's absolutely like one of the everyday ways we assign superior value to whiteness and um, everything else is measured in terms of its proximity to whiteness. Yeah, so I think maybe for some people listening, they're gonna say, we wanna make a, we wanna make a move in the right direction. So one impulse will be probably to reaffirm the uh, belief that everybody's welcome in our church, right? That um, we're not a church just for white people, we're a church for all kinds of people, and so everybody's welcome. Might be an emphasis on unity, on reconciliation. Um, uh, Do you feel like those are the right moves? Are those the the right emphasis? Those are secondary. I think if you wanna get a true pulse of where your church is at, um, the conversation we just had as a starting point, um, a true pulse of where your church is at is how openly you can talk about the ideology and principality of white supremacy. That's the starting point. What I have found overwhelmingly, uh, it, it, so let me say a statement that is, it's a big statement, but I believe this to be true. My experience now in being in, I mean, I'm a son of evangelicalism. My dad was a famous evangelical pastor. Like I've been an evangelical all of my life. That's my starting point, but I'm doing this work in a lot of progressive circles. I'm doing this work in a lot of secular circles. My conviction has only grown. There is literally no environment in the United States of America that is more difficult to talk about white supremacy than in white conservative evangelical spaces. Mm. There is literally, and it's not even close. There is literally no environment that is more hostile to this conversation than white evangelical spaces. And so we're really making a mistake when we jump too far into the conversation, when at the root level, we can't even have what's really a one-on-one conversation around white supremacy. So I would caution people to look for solutions when they haven't excavated the the depths of how um, uh, resistant white evangelicals tend to be to this anyway, right? Like if a pastor says, and so now let me even be more frank, I know pastors and maybe we're in a different cultural moment. I hope we are. I can think of three pastors off the bat who this became so core to their understanding of Jesus, they had to preach about it. And all three, um, their churches either split, lost tons of givers, two of the three ended up leaving the church because of it. And they, they weren't even pushing hard. They were just literally saying something basic, like white supremacy is real. It's an ideology and a principality. Jesus Christ does not endorse this. It's a, it's a rival kingdom. And that was enough to split churches, right? So it's, it's, we have to, we have to deal with the fact that if you tell the truth about just about any topic, if you tell the truth about abortion, you're going to be celebrated. If you tell the truth about um, greed and materialism, you're going to get celebrated. If you tell the truth about white supremacy, you're going to lose your job. 
And that's the root of all this stuff. And we, we need to think about it theologically. Um, and there are legitimately, what do you do, questions eventually. But if there's not theological agreement, and we can talk about this one too, there's all kinds of reasons why I think that's so hard. But if there's not a theological foundation in place, that white supremacy is real, that it's a threat to Jesus Christ and his kingdom, that that should be normative to call that out and combat it as believers. If you don't have that as a foundation, it's silly to have conversations around what do you do about the root being broken when you can't even talk about the root openly. Can I, let me press on you a little bit. Somebody's going to hear this, what the, the original statement that you just made, or the kind of beginning of this and say, yeah, you talk about this in progressive circles, you talk about this in secular circles, you talk about it in white evangelical circles, and the, the most hostile environment is conservative evangelicals. Yeah. Somebody's going to say, yeah, that's because progressives, you know, liberals and secular people have bought into this sort of overwrought narrative that there's this thing called white supremacy, right? That that's, it's an invention of those, those places of liberalism and, and sort of, you know, the broader secular, secular humanism is not really the boogeyman anymore, right? It's cultural Marxism is now the, 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 Mm -hmm. the thing that we're worried about. But what would you say to the person that said, the reason we're resistant in conservative evangelical churches is because it's a, it's a fiction and we're, we're standing for the truth against this sort of fiction of white supremacy. I think you're right. And I think like now we're starting to talk about like the deep, the reason we should have a deep sadness about where we're at as white evangelicals, right? If the enemy is actually liberalism and not white supremacy itself, um, which is just kind of bottom lining in a way that's more than probably somebody's going to be ready to bottom line it. But it's like, to me, there's no objective way you can say white supremacy is not only real, but destroying our society. And again, we're starting to see it a little bit in a more clear way. People are talking about it. There's no question that that's what's true. And if Jesus Christ is fundamentally true. He identifies himself, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? You'll know the truth, and you'll the truth be set free. If it's true that white supremacy exists, and I would go further, I think it's a demonic stronghold. I actually use, I got this from Dr. Keller. Like we use for our discipleship, you know, there's different ways of course to define discipleship, but I'll never forget a sermon where he did Mark three, where it says Jesus um, called the disciples to be with him and to be sent by him. And then the sent part is in two parts, sent to preach the gospel and to have authority over demonic powers. That's how we actually define discipleship um, at River City. Then the context of community, learn how to be with Jesus and all the traditional kind of things that come with that prayer and listening to God and scripture and all that stuff sent to proclaim the gospel, like to be evangelist, but then to have authority over demonic powers, right? So that's how we talk about this. Like if like there is no there is no more premier demonic power in the United States than white supremacy. So we expect that to be normal for our people to be saying, if I'm filled and sent filled with the spirit and sent by the spirit, I should be able to take on this demonic thing. But right to, to the very reason you said that conversation can't happen in most evangelical spaces because we have been conditioned to dismiss white supremacy for all the reasons and more that you just mentioned. And truly, it's a tra- it's, it breaks my heart because I and of course it's just me. I don't have the final thought. This. I see this as being one of the things that's most conflicting to Jesus' kingdom. One of the things he's doing like if we're going to say participating with Jesus in this time, to me, that's is at the top of the list. And most white evangelical spaces, we can't even begin to have the conversation because there's all these things that disable us from even naming white supremacy. And so I just, I'm mourn. I'm like, we're not even positioned to be at the 101 level of this conversation. Like the church should be leading the charge because it's a demonic stronghold. Instead, evangelicals who have the corner on truth are sitting in the, you know, are disabled for all these different kinds of reasons. And it breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, I, my, I have, I've thought of, uh, recently was just kind of processing. We've been talking a lot about 
by we, I mean, in the sort of broader culture, talking about racism and justice and white supremacy and these kinds of things. For me, I, I often think about these at sort of the epistemological level, right? Like how do we, how do we decide what's true? How do we decide right. what sources to listen to? Right. And how are we shaped right. by our sort of cultural environment to prioritize or privilege one source of information over another, right? right. And so what I think is really fascinating about what you just said and I'll, uh, is that, that we, um, that very often evangelicals are quick to say, it's impossible that we, that our whole society is shaped by a system um, that's invisible, the sort of ideology that's infected everything, right? And influences the way I act and, and, and think and et cetera. But at the, at the same time, we're very quick to be hypervigilant about um, ideologies right. in the world that might seep into our children right. or whatever and shape the way they think, right. and et cetera. So I do find yeah. it kind of ironic that, it, that for yeah. a people that are shaped by hypervigilance against dangerous ideologies and who That's should right. kind of have a, an right. impulse to repent, Right. This is one of, for some reason, our theological system as white evangelicals, right. and I understand that that there are lots of different theological systems, but this seems to be something we share. Yes. Is a particular totally. blind spot to say um, it's impossible that this thing is what the world says it is, and it's it's impossible that I might need to repent of this thing. Um, right. We're pretty open to to many other uh, right. things being possibly. Right. Yeah, that's um, right on Brandon. Right. A kind of widespread right. ideological thing seeping into the church. Right. Except for this. Right. But why do you think that is? Well, no, I I do. I think you're I think that's that's one of those questions just to tag there. Like, why is it that, you know, this is like Romans 12, 1 and 2 language, right? Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, be transformed by the ring of your mind, right? Why is it we can seemingly embrace that so easily for so many topics, but when the conversation shifts to white supremacy and race, we we no longer feel comfortable saying it's a pattern of this world that I'm at risk of being conformed to. I'm not actively asking Jesus to transform me, right? Like I just think for us to sit in that, like something, something smells wrong about that, right? That we can do it everywhere else, but we we can't do it with this. You know, I, I do think there's a number of reasons. Um, one of the ones that, you know, one of the kind of lengthy explanations I do, you know, I've got this next book, White Lies, coming out, which is just for this very purpose. Like, how can white Christians learn about or expose lies and tell the truth of Jesus to ourselves first before to the rest of the world? You know, one of the ones, I, I think an uncomfortable exercise we have to do, and you guys are very close to Jamar Tisby too, so you know of his book, um, The Color of Compromise, which does this in a really painfully wonderful way. Um, I think we have to recognize that literally since the foundation, like we've got a history that's unlike any other country where white Christianity is at the beginning of the story, right? Like we, white people came here and of course they weren't called white them, but that's a different conversation. White Christians came here for freedom of expression, freedom to be, you know, express their Christianity. We, we literally were a white Christian nation, right? And so from the very beginning, I think most of us could agree that the two most widespread atrocities that have happened here in this country would be the cultural genocide, some would even say physical genocide of native people, and of course slavery, right? Those are the two big stains. And I think it's a pretty easy case objectively to make that if white Christianity would have stood up against those at any point, right? Uh, there's always, of course, the unique story of the abolitionists who did, but it was never the mainstream. Um, we didn't just complicitly stand by, like theology was used to make sense of those things, right? We could get deeper into that, but let's just leave it at the macro level, right? Theology was used to justify those things. I, I say all that because it's kind of encoded into American white Christianity now. We almost have to find a way to work around the legacy of white supremacy, right? Because it's so endemic to, uh, like the American story, I'm not saying the longer arc of Christianity. 
but the American story of white Christianity has always required our theology to work around racial atrocities. And so I actually think it's kind of built into the DNA now, like where there's, you're right, like when, when you don't want to deal with the traumatization that's happened at the hands of your ancestors, you're, it's just kind of built into the psyche now to kind of work your way around it. And that would be one of the big reasons to me why we can have truth telling conversations around any other social ill, but the one that really highlights our own historical complicity the most, I think it's, and I don't even think it's always conscious. I just think we've learned to negotiate around all the wreckage that really couldn't have been there without like, Christian support. So uh, to me, that would be one of the big, big reasons. Yeah. So uh, in the interest of time, I, I, um, I'm thoroughly enjoying this and I don't want to cut it short, but the, um, someone's listening, they are, maybe they've participated in a march against a social injustice for the first time in their life. Maybe they're leading or um, thinking of planting or something, uh, a church, and it was, it is a, a largely white monocultural church. Their training is in, you know, sort of white evangelical seminary or their upbringing is in, you know, um, kind of coming up through the ranks like you did in a, an established church and um, et cetera. I have a, a particular vision of what ministry success looks like, right? That I, I kind of do this and it gets bigger and then I write a book and I do mm -hmm. the, so this is pretty <laughs> yeah. significant paradigm shift, right? For potentially for a lot of people out there. And I'm curious what advice you would offer, you know, maybe what you would have told yourself 15 years ago <laughs> as this was all kind of starting. Like if, if you're really going to go down this new road, here's what you need to know. Um, can you, what, what would you say to the person who's, who, who thinks they might be ready to make a turn or make a commitment to do something differently? What would you tell them? Yeah. I mean, I think when I think of the two most substantial things for me, you know, so I was fortunate to have the guidance of Michael Emerson early on at River City, and he wrote that famous book, Divided by Faith, and then a number of follow-ups, which, you know, for two decades now has been gold, the gold standard in a lot of white evangelical spaces for thinking about race. One of the things he told our church team before we even started was, you, if you, you have to be attuned to power. You have to understand kind of how power plays out in something like this. And I had never really thought of myself as very powerful and it was confusing. And so we asked him, give us some examples of power. And he gave us a bunch of examples. We don't have time to get into all of them, but he said, let's get right to the number one thing. Here's the most powerful thing that happens in a church. We were really curious. What's the most powerful thing that happens in a church? He said, the most powerful thing that happens in a church is either you, Daniel, or one of the other pastors or elders will get up and say, here's what mature Christianity looks like. Hmm. So there will be never anything more powerful that happens because in that definition will be included what Christians should be concerned about and what they shouldn't, mm -hmm. how they should be organizing their lives and how they shouldn't. Right. And so, um, so if I broaden it out for this first step, I think we have got to come back to the most fundamental thing of like, how do we think of discipleship? Like what, what are we telling people it means to follow Jesus? And my, what I found, I don't think we have to scrap everything we learned in these evangelical seminaries. I mean, as long as we're committed to scripture, like if you throw at scripture, that's to me the starting point. It's, 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 it's not that that, has, that that paradigm doesn't have to change, is that we have to take it all the way, right? Mm -hmm. So um, um, what I find is that in most white evangelical spaces that are committed to scripture, they have learned how to talk about discipleship in a way that, that white supremacy doesn't fit at all. It feels like something different, something ancillary, something, oh, we need to figure out how to add this, you know, but it feels like it's a different discussion than the kind of fundamental conversation of discipleship, which is why I mentioned that one from Dr. Keller early on, because I was searching for ways, and Dr. Keller was helpful for this. I was searching for ways to talk about discipleship that included confronting race. So we use that Mark 3 one um, with incent, incent being preach the gospel and have authority over 
demonic powers, right? So that's the that's how we would talk about discipleship. Or we use Romans 12, 1 and 2 a lot, that this is the formative part of discipleship to like be conscientious around what patterns we're being conformed to and what we're being transformed to. So there's a lot that the religious right mentioned within that. It's just, I just think front and center needs to be the ideology of white supremacy. We don't need to even get rid of the other ones, but like put the ideology of white supremacy in its proper place that if people are going to be Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of people, that there's conscientious work being done of how am I being conformed to the patterns of that ideology and what does it look like to be transformed? So that would be the biggest one I would say is, right? If our starting point is authority of scripture and a commitment to discipleship, man, we better have those definitions um, be comprehensive enough that we're not leaving out enormous aspects. And so I, I have found consistently, even for white churches that want to, if they can't backload it back into the most fundamental description of how they think of discipleship, there's really not going to be any staying power to this. It's always going to feel like a voluntary, secondary, peripheral kind of thing, as opposed to, for me, the fundamental level is the two kingdoms vying for supremacy. And we have to be super serious about that. And then I'd say second, it's related. And we've, we've hit this a little bit here too, but I would just kind of put it in practical form here. I think it's just as simple as telling the truth and exposing lies. Mm. Um, I think if a church can have a foundation, like if a white church could get to the place where a pastor can get up in the pulpit and say, look, this is just our starting point here. We assume white supremacy is demonic and evil. We assume it's opposed to the kingdom of Jesus. We assume that as followers of Jesus, that's something we care about and confront. Like that paves the way then. So then if there's a grotesque manifestation of it, you don't have to recover all of that, right? You don't have to like suddenly start taking people down this controversial road of interpreting all of it. You've got a foundation in place that tells the truth that there's this historical stronghold that plays out in a variety of different ways, that there's a theological imperative to name it and name the lies behind it, which is, you know, what I think is some of the important work to do. Um, so in a sense, that sounds simple, but that's the kind of thing that can split your church, right? So um, that's why it's, and it's, you can't do that in one week, right? Like you have to have a thoughtful, biblically centered, you know, um, foundation on Christ is, is what all things being revealed through him, to him. Um, I, I think... Yeah, I think if those two things are in place, a church is actually positioned to like become more active in the fight. But I would say the reverse is true too. The activity becomes really dangerous when it's not rooted in a theological framework that understands white supremacy as a direct competitor to the throne of Jesus Christ. That's very helpful. I'm very grateful for your time. And um, this has been a really great conversation. I'd like to give you the last word. Um, and I'm curious what you think about this that I, I hear in conversations that I'm in and see on social media other times that this, this moment is different. This, this is different with the, the, the um, demonstrations, the protests, the marches, the things that are happening after the killing of George Floyd and uh, the other relatively recent Mar Arbery, Breonna Taylor, um, that this is different. I'm curious what you think as someone who's been kind of having these conversations for a lot longer than others of us have, does it feel different to you? Um, and, and what do you, what makes you hopeful or gives you pause about this minute? Yeah, maybe it's different, you know, so I, I would imagine a lot of listeners have come across this article. If they haven't, it's worth looking up. Remember in the New York times, I think this was last year, the New York times did an article called the quiet exodus. Do you remember that where it talked about, black folks who had kind of enlisted in white evangelical spaces because they thought white evangelicals were ready for this and then kind of discovered that white evangelicals are not ready for this. So even as it's different than it is, I actually think black Christian pain is as high as it's ever been right now because there's almost like this 
we've been telling you this is what's true. Like, why don't you listen to us? Why does it take eight minutes of a guy's knee on somebody's throat? And even then you're still not totally sure, right? So um, I think that's gonna be the acid test of is it different or not, particularly in our world, in the white evangelical world, are we ready to say this stronghold of white supremacy has been active for a really long time and it's dangerous? Yeah. Now, if I make that practical, I, I do know a number of white pastors who have kind of become friends since White Away came out, who after that book came out, they said, we, we are convicted of this well as well. We want to lead our churches in this. How do we do that? And what continue to happen there is that their churches aren't ready for it. And so most of them are always have to like, you know, it, they can only get about ankle deep, right? So what I'm finding in that group is that this moment is different and that because the national conversation is so accelerated and intensified on it, they can now go waist deep maybe um, into the conversation and that's significant. And then there's a ton of white pastors who have never seriously considered where there might be theological blind spots or flaws that disable them from talking intelligently about this. So that's what I hope might be different too. Those who didn't used to preach about that, what I, you know, the, the, the risk is that it just becomes just that officer who did just that grotesque thing. Like everybody agrees that was grotesque, right? Um, that's not really the important conversation. The important conversation is what's the system and structure that allows for that to form, right? <laughs> right. And how do we think about that theologically and biblically? Like that's where the change is going to happen when people who like me and you who are, you know, are leading people theologically every week can help people under how to understand this biblically and how to make sense of the fact that the whole Bible speaks to this, if we're kind of looking for it too, like that will be the lasting evidence of change to me is if this can be talked about in a more theological and biblically centered way in what empirical spaces. So I, that, that is my hope, right? I mean, I, re, I rest everything on the authority of scripture. I think, you know, it's Luke 24 stuff, right? It all points to Jesus. So I believe Jesus cares deeply about this. I believe to follow Jesus is to care deeply and participate with him. That's going to be the lasting change to me. So may it be, may it be that this was the wake up where, where we weren't just looking for immediate action, but where we even interrogated our own theology and said, why don't I talk about this more? How do I not more naturally connect this to the person of Jesus Christ and his work? And so I hope and pray that that is what indeed happens. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Daniel. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks, Brian. I really enjoyed the chance to talk with you.